If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to close out this series of January looking at stewardship God gives. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. And today we're looking at this idea of when God gives, we sacrifice. When God gives, we sacrifice. Robert Coleman wrote, Strangely today we hear little about self-denial and suffering and all the talk about church growth. Is this because most of what has been said to date has come out of the Western world where affluence abounds and church affiliation is a mark of social acceptance, if not good politics? Unwittingly, I'm afraid, Christian discipleship has often been squeezed into the world's mold so that prosperity and success are more cherished than radical obedience. But it will not stand the test of time. And we have seen that casual Christianity take a major hit with the COVID pandemic of uh, 2020 and 2021. When the standards of church membership are set by popular demand, eventually the church becomes much like the world. There is no reason for the world to change. The very effort of the church to appease fleshly expectations make her, the church, unattractive. That's what Robert Coleman wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. See, God has given us salvation, and in that comes an understanding of sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Self-denial and suffering are aspects of sacrifice, and more than suffering in the sense of sacrifice is self-denial. To deny oneself from the things of the world or your own pleasures is to sacrifice. And Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand the call to his sacrifice. Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Sacrifice can go to extremes as well. So we must remember that sacrifice must be submitted to the Lord through stewardship of our lives. Jesus was fully submitted to the will of the Father or the plans of the Father. If you have not heard these words from Christ before his arrest uh, and the cross, he said this, Jesus said, Not my will, but thy will be done. It is the banner language of the disciple of Christ. And those plans required obedience and sacrifice. Obedience to God is almost always a prerequisite to sacrifice. Obedience to God is almost always a prerequisite to sacrifice. Sometimes, though, when in the will of God, our obedience is joy or gladness of heart. It's not always a sacrifice if we are in the will of God. But today, we are looking at what it means to steward God's giving through sacrifice. How to steward God's giving through sacrifice. So if you have your copy of God's Word, look there in Matthew chapter 8, verse, beginning in verse 18, and we will stop at, the, uh, at verse, seven, verse 27. Matthew 8, beginning in verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. 
Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? As we look at this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27, we come through and Jesus has been healing people left and right. I mean, he has been healing folks. And then he has, at this moment, he says, there is a, we, it is revealed to us through Matthew's gospel that there is a great multitude that is around him. And, and they're pressing in on him, and the Lord Jesus needs some rest. Now, we all need rest. I've talked about that. I'm not preaching on rest today, but we all need that. And this great multitude is about him, and he gave a command to depart to the other side. And then we're going to kind of find ourselves where I have pulled from this text what I want us to grasp today, and that's about how when God gives, we sacrifice. The scribe comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So the scribe begins by calling or referring to Christ as teacher. This reveals that this is not a disciple of Christ as we understand them today. This is later on, just a little bit further down, you'll see that it says a disciple of his. And of course, the disciple of his doesn't mean the twelve. It could have been a plethora of people who were following him around at that time. Many people were called disciples because they just followed Jesus around. They weren't really doing the will of the Father. They weren't really submitting their lives or sacrificing. They were just following. They were on the precipice, if you will, looking over into salvation, looking over into discipleship, but they were called disciples at that time. But we have this scribe that comes up, and he makes this bold proclamation, I will follow you wherever you go. This is truly a major change of perspective for this scribe. It's a major change. But Jesus knows this man hasn't counted the cost or considered the sacrifice required that is involved in discipleship. Jesus tells the man that following him will not even guarantee a roof over the man's head. He says, it didn't even guarantee you a roof over your head. And in the many commentaries I read in preparation for this scripture, counting the cost came up the most often. Many people today do not count the cost. They, they count the emotion. They feel the emotion, but they don't count the cost. And that's what God calls on us to do, to count the cost. If you have your word of God with you, flip over to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. It says this, Now great multitudes were with him, talking about Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you... Intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, <clears throat> whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, 
going to make war against another king, does not sit down first to consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, you better count the cost. You better sacrifice to follow me. It's hard choices to follow after Christ. My first point there is God's giving may lead to sacrificing house and home. God's giving may lead to sacrificing of house and home. He says, Jesus said to him, he said, Birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But you know what, though? He did at one time. But this is what Christ is trying to say. The overall point he's trying to make is that we will have to make sacrifice for Christ in our discipleship. And in that sacrifice, we steward it for God's glory, his kingdom, and our good. Jesus tells the scribe, and in essence us too, that the sacrifice required for being a disciple is a willingness to leave house and home and not expect a house or home in our following of him. Jesus did not want followers who were swept away by a moment of emotion which quickly blazed and just as quickly died. He did not want men who were carried away by a tide of mere feeling which quickly flowed and just as quickly ebbed. He wanted men and women who knew what they were doing. He talked about taking up a cross in Matthew 10, 38. He talked about setting himself above the dearest relationships in life in Luke 14, 26. He talked about giving away everything to the poor in Matthew 19, 21. He was always saying to men, yes, I know that your heart is running out to me, but do you love me enough for that? Do you love me enough for that. You know, in the United States, we've been fed this lie that when we follow Christ, every step of the disciple is an upward step. We've been fed this lie that when you come to faith in Christ, that every step is an upward step, an upward step in our relationships, an upward step in our jobs, an upward step in our finances. We've been fed this lie, and this is foreign to the teachings of Christ and the early church. It's so foreign. When surrendering to Christ as Lord, many of those at this time lost everything with that decision. They lost everything. So in the early followers' lives, there never would have been this thought of, I have followed a Christ, now I'll be living in the lap of luxury. There was never this thought. But today, for some reason, people think, if I give my life to Christ, my finances are going to come together. Man, everything's going to be fixed. My family's all going to get saved, and everything else is going to happen. Listen, guys, Jesus said, I have come, and I bring a sword. He said, and I separate families. And not because it's his will that families be separated, but he's saying, to follow me is to set me above all other relational priorities. And Jesus is like, I really want them all to come along. But listen, you follow me and my job is to bring them along. God says, I'll bring them. I'll reach out to them. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't reach out to them. Don't misunderstand me. But following Christ differentiates and, and uh, sanctifies and separates us 
from other people. Because if our lives look no different from the lost people that we're around, you probably aren't saved. If there's no change of language, if there's no change of how, what you look at, if there's no change in, those, in, in what you think about or in what you desire and your passions lead you to, you're probably still lost. Jesus says, count the cost. And when he's talking about that, not, he's not sitting here going, count the cost like this. Woo-woo, I got a lot of money. He said, count the cost like this is what, you've, this is what you're sacrificing. Count the cost. Listen, Jesus, before he, he was baptized, before he began his public ministry, you know what? He had a home. You know that? He had a trade. He was a carpenter. He was trained by his dad. He was a carpenter. He had a home. He had a family. But you know what happened? When he began his public ministry, when he was baptized by John the baptizer, and he began, he didn't have a home. He had no place to lay his head because everywhere he laid his head, was there was contentious uh, people striving against the work of God and against him. You know, a lot of these prosperity teachers that you better be careful who you're watching on TV. Oh, they're going to tell you they want a new jet so they can fly here and fly there. And that's a bunch of nonsense junk. Be careful who you're watching on TV. There's a bunch of... Anyway, I don't want to go too deep because it's not in my notes. But there's a lot of wacky people online who tell you, send in a few dollars here and get a, get a prayer cloth and, and all this nonsense. Your carpet in your house is just as valuable to, to, to prayer before Christ as some prayer cloth you're going to get from some charlatan on TV. So just pray and talk to him. Be a disciple of Christ. Jesus gives a very clear call to understand the sacrifice required to be a follower of Christ in the first generation of Christianity. The problem is that you and I shouldn't come to Jesus to get stuff. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. You may lose everything in this world, but he is enough. That's what David Platt wrote in his commentary. He is enough. Years ago, I preached a, ser- uh, I preached a sermon at uh, two, two churches back when I was serving. And, and I said, listen, don't come down here and ask Christ to save you because the reason why you want salvation is for your husband or your son or your grandchild to come to faith. You're trying to use God to the means of an end for your child's salvation. No, Jesus is the means of an end to your salvation. Jesus is, you, is all you need. But so many times people want to put these stipulations. If I, get, if I give my life to Christ, my husband may come. If I give my life to Christ, my child may come. If I give my, don't, you, you can't live your life like that. Because what if, what if it's not God's will to go speak to them and, and for them to be saved? I don't know God's will. I know it's God's desire that none perish apart from him, but that all come to repentance. So I pray that that's his will, but I don't know. So you can't say, I want to give my life to Jesus so that they may be saved. You give your life to Jesus because you need to be saved. You're a sinner on the way to hell, and you need salvation. I needed salvation at one point in my life. And Jesus called out to me, and I humbly submitted my life to him and said, I am a sinner in need of salvation. Lord, save me. That's what God calls us to do. It is 
It is the individual's choice. Barclay challenges us when we think about this sacrifice, when we've got this sacrifice. Barclay wrote in his commentary, he said, if a young man desires for scholarship, we must say to him, good, but are you prepared to scorn the delight, delights and live toilsome days? When an explorer is building his team, he will be inundated with people offering their services. But he must weed out the romantics and the realistics and the realist by saying, Good, but are you prepared for the snow and ice, for the swamps and the heat, for the exhaustion and the weariness of it all? When a young person wishes to become an athlete, the trainer must say, Good, but are you prepared for the self-denial and the self-discipline that alone will win you the victories that you need, excuse me, for the victories uh, of which you dream? This is not to discourage enthusiasm, but it is to say that enthusiasm, which has not faced the facts, will soon be dead ashes instead of a flame. From what I preach to you from the Word of God, no one can ever say that they followed Jesus on false pretenses. I, I try to tell you all the time, following Jesus does not mean that all your answers are given and all your issues are resolved. But what it does mean is your eternal destination is secure. And you've got a God that's full of grace that will forgive you when you sin. That's what I'm telling you when you come to Christ. Jesus is uncompromisingly honest. You and I should have counted the cost to follow Christ. And if you haven't followed Christ, you better count the cost. This is no light-hearted decision. It is a wholehearted decision that has to be led by the Spirit, considered in the mind and heart, and proclaimed loudly if made. God's giving may lead to the sacrificing of house and home. Secondly, God's giving may lead to sacrificing of time with family and friends. Look there in verse 21. In verse 21, he says this, and we have this account, actually 21 and 22. Then another of his disciples said to him, okay, now this is one of those that actually was following. This is not the scribe. This is a different individual. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me. And let the dead bury their own dead. Now, it's one of those times we read this portion, we think, this isn't a difficult or terrible request. You know, I mean, like, he, he, who shouldn't be allowed to go to their father's funeral? I mean, some people may think, man, Jesus is just not compassionate. How dare he be so brash and inconsiderate toward this guy? But this is what we've got to understand. This isn't, what is, uh, this isn't what is understood to be said in the original languages or the nuances of the Jewish culture. Barclay writes, Undoubtedly what the man in this gospel incident meant was, I will follow you someday when my father is dead and when I am free to go. He was in fact putting off his following of Jesus for many years to come. And this is similar to people thinking they can go sow their wild oats, then come to Christ. Or I'll come to Christ once I'm married and have kids. I've, I've heard a lot of people say that, and some people live their lives like that. Listen, there is no submission or sacrifice to the call of Christ when you make those type decisions. <clears throat> there are ev this, these are evidences of churched ideologies, of churched ideologies. There is no church that can save the lost sinner, only Christ. 
There is no delayed discipleship that will motivate the heart to salvation. There is no guarantee of Christ's calling through the work of the Holy Spirit unto salvation and further discipleship beyond the one experience you may have. There is no guarantee that God's going to come back to you again. So if God speaks to your heart today, what do you do? You respond in obedience to him. You sacrifice and you say, this is it. I'm giving up my life for Christ now. I'm giving up my life for Christ now. Don't put it off. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, and you're not guaranteed that Christ is going to send His Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin so that you may know, I need a Savior. There's no guarantee. So while it is day, turn to Christ. While He is near, draw near to Him, call upon Him. While His arms are open, embrace Him. Come to Christ. God's giving, it may lead to sacrificing time with family and friends, but it also may lead to the, to the opportunity to spend eternity with family and friends. But this guy, he says, oh, first, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. You notice he does call him Lord. He has been following him around. He's been hearing his teachings. There's a lot of people in churches I can't remember the statistic exactly, but somewhere many years ago, Billy Graham said something like something close to 20% of the people in churches, uh, 80% of the people in the churches are not saved. I was thinking 20% because that's how many are. And I was like, boy, that's scary to think. That's scary to think. The disciples who committed their lives to Christ, they left their families and friends to commit to following Christ. You think about those fishermen. Those fishermen, they were out on the boat, and they left, uh, they left their dad in the boat. They're like, Dad, we got to go follow Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know we had a lucrative fishing business, but you know what? I'm just going to go follow this guy. He, he's, he's it. He's the Messiah, the one we've all been longing for and looking for. Hope you can handle it, Dad. We might swing by a few times and help you out. Or Jesus might actually help you out. We find that out later. Jesus helps him out a few different times. But he, he's like, this is not what we're called to. We're not called to fish. At least not for fish. We're called to fish for men. So they followed Christ. They sacrificed that time. You know, today, especially in, in the United States, in, in Alabama, in Walker County, we may not have to abandon our lives and livelihoods for the sake of Christ. But we may have to abandon certain friends, maybe family. Places we frequented in life choices. We, we may have to abandon those things. One thing from this text that should truly humble us is that Jesus is not begging for followers in Matthew 8. He's not begging for followers in Matthew 8. He's actually turning them away because he warrants unconditional trust and undivided affection from those who follow him. When Jesus speaks, leprosy, blindness, and fever obey. The question is, do we obey? Do we obey? And you think about, you know, going back over there to Luke, leaving all to follow Christ. He says, if anyone comes after me, he must hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, his own life also. He cannot, if he doesn't do those things, he cannot be my disciple. Guys, Jesus, and he's, when he says hate, 
That means that you are not to put them above Christ's relationship in your life. Should they still be valuable to you? Yes. But he's saying, if first place has got to belong to me, I have got to be the eminence, the preeminence of your life. I should be the first thought when you wake up and the last thought when you lie down. When you wake up, can I glorify you, God? And when you lie down at night, did I glorify you, God? Those thoughts should be the thoughts that run through each and every one of our minds. Am I, am I guilty of not doing that? Yes. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we'd all say, yeah, I've done that. More than once. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. You know, sometimes I, you, know, you get up in the morning, you got heaviness of, of the activities of the day, and sometimes you just, let the, you just let your devotion to the Lord just kind of slip. We need to be people that are mindful that God should be first in our lives. And it's not that we don't love our family or love our kids or grandkids, great-grandkids, but Christ has got to come first. And if you want a heritage of faith, and I'm not saying again, I talked about this at length earlier, but if you want to have a little bit of influence toward the heritage of your future spiritually, see them, let them see you doing things that glorify Christ. And listen, attending church is fantastic, but there's a lot of people who've attended churches and done a lot of heinous things. So attending church does not equate to, I'm showing my kids exactly how to live for Christ. You want to show your kids how to live by Christ? Wake up every day living for Christ. Wake up every day living for Christ. Not just on Sunday or on Sunday after, Wednesday afternoons. Wake up living for Christ daily. And this is difficult. I'm not sitting here telling you this is easy. You know, I'm not. C.S. Lewis, he, he wrote a book entitled The Great Divorce. Some of you maybe have read this. I don't know. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But there's an allegory that ties right into what we're reading today about prioritizing our relationship with Jesus Christ. Lewis, in this book called The Great Divorce, uh, it's, it's he with a lot of ghosts. He's a ghost. And he, let me just read this to you so that I can stay in line and not get too far out of line. Lewis is a ghost along with many others who have boarded this bus for the gate of heaven. When they are dropped off, they are to choose between the eternal glory of God and the empty illusions of earth, what he calls the great divorce between heaven and earth. A woman named Pam is on the bus and exits to see her younger brother, Reginald. She is disappointed because she was expecting her son, Michael, to whom she devoted her life. Michael passed away uh, very young. The brother tells her she's not ready to see Michael yet. She must first be eager to see God himself. Then all the other wonderful blessings of heaven will be available. God isn't simply a way to get to heaven. Heaven is a way to get to God. And Pam must approach it that way. Her brother tells her once she grasps that, she will go on like a house fire when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. Pam doesn't quite understand, but if that's what it takes to get to Michael, she's game and she's up for it. Her brother, Reginald, tells her that her attitude won't cut it. Reginald tells her, you're treating God as a means to Michael. God must be wanted because he is God, not a path to something else. Reginald tells her, you exist as Michael's mother only because you first exist as God's creature. Human beings can't make one another really happy for long. You can't love a fellow creature fully till you love God. 
Pam's love for her own son was something of an obsession in life. After her son died, she kept his room just as he left it for 10 years. She neglected her other children, her husband, and her parents to the pain and disappointment of them all. All of this was sacrificed on the altar of her adoration for her son. Pam declares, no one has a right to come between me and my son, not even God. Lewis's view reveals, it's not so much that God won't let us into heaven, it's that we won't let ourselves in. If we can't learn how to say, thy will be done, then finally God must sadly say, okay then, thy will be done. In that story, we see that she cherished and worshipped her son Michael more than she did Christ. We cannot prioritize family over Christ. We cannot prioritize friends over Christ. And Jesus tells him there in that passage of Scripture, he says, let the dead bury the dead. He's talking about the spiritually dead. If, 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 and he's talking about the spiritually dead burying the physically dead. If you're alive in Christ, follow me. Follow me. The first commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. That's, that's the call of the disciple of Christ. That is the Shema that the Jews uh, say every single day, still, to this day. So to choose even family over Christ is choosing an idol, is sacrificing our lives to their cause and not Christ's cause. We must be Christ-focused. And when we are, then our eyes may see and love others as Christ has seen and loved us. And you may say, but I can't love my children any less. I can't love my children any less. No, you can't, nor am I telling you to, but you can love them differently. You can love them differently. You can love them in the context of your primary devotion to God. And, and that, you will find, turns out to be a far greater, healthier, and more fruitful love. So God's giving may lead to sacrificing time with family and friends. Thirdly, God's giving may lead to sacrificing comfort in life. Look at the last set, last portion of scripture here in verses 23 through 27. Now, Jesus, after these two uh, people, these two men have come up and talked to him, now it says, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed after him. So, Jesus now, he had told them uh, in verse 18, uh, he commanded them to depart to the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee. Now, in verse 27, now he's gotten into the boat. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Jesus was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. So the men marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? So God's giving may lead to sacrifice and comfort and maybe even life. At this point in the account, Jesus calls for the disciples to get in the boat. Listen, the boat is not an uncommon place for these disciples, is it? For the vast majority of the disciples, they were quite comfortable in the boat, especially considering most of them were called and came from a life and career of fishing. Fishing, many of them, on the Sea of Galilee. So like, they're like, this is no, you know, 
being in a boat, that's not calling me out of my comfort zone. Matter of fact, I'm probably a lot more comfortable here than I may be on the land. But undoubtedly, this tempest that arose was one unlike they had ever experienced. If, if you go back and you study, and as I've read, tempest on the Sea of Galilee was not anything new. Often winds swept off the hillside and created a dangerous situation. And the original word was seismos, which is the word earthquake. And this is what is used to describe this particular tempest, a seismos. So with the way the winds came down, it is said fishermen felt the wind from every direction. It's like the wind was just slapping them from every direction. Hitting their boat, it says the waves were so large, uh, the boat was covered with waves. Any of y'all ever been on a boat that's covered with waves? Anybody? No? We went on a cruise many years ago, and I'm telling you, it got kind of rough. I mean, like... The, the, the boat was rocking. Every bit of the, the furniture on the top deck was sliding everywhere. I mean, it was crazy. It was cold. It was, it was terrible. It was a, look, the only good experience on that cruise was the fact to say we've been on one <laughs> and we got off of it. Just, and, and while the food was really good, too. If you've ever been on one, man, they feed you like, like you've never eaten a meal before. But, um, but gosh, it was cold. That storm arose. We didn't get to do what we wanted to do when we got to the place. And... and I'm telling you, I was scared. I'm thinking, we're on this big boat out in the middle of nowhere. You know, um, some of you maybe even seen the commercials for the TV show 911. And in the recent most episode, a cruise ship dumps over. Man, I'm telling you, if that don't give you anxiety, I'm never getting on one of them things probably ever again. I don't have any desire to. Uh, but anyway, so these guys, they have, they have gotten on this boat. They're familiar with storms and waves. And th but this was something massive, undoubtedly, something that they were unfamiliar with. And so they're all anxious and nervous. And Jesus, he's just down there going, man, I'm just getting some shut-eye. He's like, man, these folks have wore me out. Because you imagine how, how tired Jesus must have been? Now, Jesus was a man. Jesus was very tired. And here it is, this tempest has arose, and Jesus is just taking a nap. Jesus is taking a nap. So here he is, and he's taking this nap. Okay. Um, and they, they come up to him, and, and he says, and, and they say, um, Lord, save us, we are perishing. Lord, save us, we are perishing. And Jesus, Jesus I mean, I can only do something. Oh, man. Yeah. I was dreaming about heaven. I don't, know. I don't know what Jesus was saying. But Jesus gets up and he, he goes, guys, you know, I, I mean, you guys have so little of faith. What did I tell you? Get on the boat, we're going to depart and go to the other side. I'm with you. I said we're going to go to the other side. And he rebukes the wind and the waves, and they calm right down. They calm right down. You know, in our own lives, we have, sometimes we may just have small gusts of wind that just kind of tip our boat back and forth, if you will. But sometimes we may have one of these seismos kind of storms that arise in our lives. It's, it's like everything hits at once. Some of you maybe have experienced that. I want you to notice a few things about this, okay? Jesus is in the boat. The disciples are in the boat. The storm still comes. The storm still comes. But I want you to understand, Jesus is still in the boat. 
In Jesus' words, the Bible tells us, and I know it's talking about the word of God, it says it will not return void. When Jesus said, I'm going, we're going across the sea, Jesus is basically saying, I'm in the boat with you. And these guys are fearful, they're scared, as we all would be. You know, we all would be. Many of times we like to, we like to, we like to throw shade on the disciples and we like to, we, we, we like, man, but man, these guys, man, they just don't understand nothing. Yeah, well, you know what? We'd be in the same place. We know good and well we would be. Because we have storms in our life every day, various types of things that come into our lives that rock us, that shake us, and cause us to question. But we got to remember, if we'll just look, the Lord's still in the boat with us. God, But God also wants us to consider the cost of getting in that ship. God wants us to consider the cost of getting in that boat with him. There will be storms. There will be things that arise. If we think about that text from Luke that we looked at earlier, Jesus talked about building a tower, knowing the cost of building it so it may be completed. Jesus talks about a king who goes out to war, understanding the power of the enemy and how to thwart their victory. God knows. Count the cost. If you're going to ask Jesus to get into the boat of your life, count the cost. There could be a storm on that sea. It could be a storm on that sea, but you got to learn to trust. you got to learn to trust him. Jesus said, we're going to the other side. Is there another side or a destination? Yes. Do we know what it is all the time or some of the time? No, we don't. Is Christ present with you in the storm? I hope so. Yes. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So is there a reason to fear? There should not be a reason to fear. We might get concerned. And then we go to the master. We go to Jesus. There's, but there's an opportunity for us to trust. There's an opportunity to sacrifice. There's an opportunity to steward our sacrifice well by trusting that the God of the seas will get us through to the other side. And although the disciples knew the sea, although the disciples knew the workings of a boat, they were fearful. We may say, I've done this before. I've been through life. I've handled this before. But you know what, though? You still got to trust Christ. You still got to trust him. You got to lean on him and allow him to be Lord of your life, not just Savior. You got to let him be the Lord of your life. Trust him. He's going to get you to the other side. <clears throat> The cost of sacrifice can be great. It can be. House and home, family and friends, comfort and lives. But the outcome of walking in that sacrifice with Christ is incalculable. Trusting Christ. Trusting Christ. Let me ask you, have you sacrificed your life for the life Christ has for you? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul wrote to those in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. He says this, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor adulterers nor idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. 
but such were some of you. Listen to that past tense. I love the past tense. It's the beauty of this verse. But some of you were, but such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. That's what some of you were. Some of you walked in that daily. Some of you chose that lifestyle daily. But God says, no more, no longer. You've been saved from that. Don't return. You've been washed, sanctified, and justified in Jesus Christ. That's what you were. But praise God, he has led you to be able to sacrifice that old life to him. Listen, and and know this. For those of you, for those who were this way, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. And maybe some of you are still this way. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8, 1 through 11. In Romans 8, 1 through 11. The scripture says this, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, for indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You are not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you have the spirit of Christ living in you today? You can. You can have the Holy Spirit indwelling you today. All you've got to do is say, I sacrifice my life to Christ. I offer my, I offer my life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto him. If you've never done that before, today could be your day of salvation. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you. He sacrificed his life so that you can live a life that is full for him. And when I say full, I mean full of him. 